Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Sermonjit Singh, and I'm here with Eric Wang, who is a PhD student at the NYU School of Medicine. Eric, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yeah, thanks. So, Eric, you are a PhD student. You just completed your second year. Yes. yes. Uh, so this is the end of my second year. Mm-hmm. I just finished my qualifying exams. Right. So that's a very interesting period in the life of a PhD student. That and, and I definitely want to talk to you about that. So, what is a, a, a qual- well? First of all, let's just do a simple intro to the research that mm-hmm. the, that you do, and uh, then let's discuss what exactly a qualifying exam is, mm-hmm. and we'll kind of go through the, the nuts and bolts. All right. Yeah. Um, so I'm a PhD student. I'm uh, in Giannis Ifantis' lab at NYU. And the primary focus of the lab is studying leukemia, but also a little bit of the hematopoietic or hematopoiesis, so like how blood formation. And uh, I mean, a lot of the research involves making uh, genetic mouse models of cancer, but also studying in terms of uh, therapeutics too. And so my focus of my thesis is more towards the therapeutics of leukemia. Great. And so when you say qualifying exam, what do you mean? What is that? So the, the PhD program, I mean, it's about like five and a half years. And up until the second, the end of your second year, there's an exam called the qualifying exam. And the purpose is really to, well, there's a few things. First um, is to see if your PI and also myself, the PhD students, are fit for the lab. So actually the first thing to ask you when you enter there is like, do you like the lab? How's the environment? Oh, really? Wow. And they also ask the PI, too, how is the PhD uh, student? Is this done in front of the PI? Like, uh, no, so no, I would stay, and then he would leave, <laughs> okay. and vice versa. Okay. So that's the first thing to ask, just to see how's the environment. And the second part is more of the, your the, uh, thesis project, or the exam. And this is based on your project, basically. Um, so basically, uh, what you do is just give, like, a... Well, before that, you submit, like, a proposal about your project, and your committee members, which are PIs uh, here at NYU, they look at it. And then um, at the day of the present oral presentation, you basically give like a 30 to 40 minute talk. Mm-hmm. And during this time, they basically just ask you tons of questions just to make sure you know the background, uh, whether you're on the right track of doing experiments and whys. Mm-hmm. And if everything looks good, they, just, they pass you. Okay. If not, they have the option of kicking you out. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's quite a... Uh, it's intense. It, it's intense, like, yeah. So when you give this talk, it's, it's, you have a PowerPoint slide up, right? So you have right. prepared all of the data that you've generated up until that point. Yes. Right? Yeah. And uh, so that's basically what they're asking questions on and about future directions as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's like uh, you know, the current progress, mm-hmm. but also what experiments you're planning in the future. What is... Is it a reasonable time within your PhD to finish this project, basically? Okay. So, I guess it's not really a secret. Uh, did you pass or not? Yes. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, passed. Fortunately or unfortunately? <laughs> well, we'll see in a couple of years. Yeah, we'll see exactly. Yeah. So, I guess, going back to the, the subject matter of, mm-hmm. of your, your research, so, leukemia. Uh, so, what specifically... Uh, because if you say, oh, I study leukemia, it's like, oh, I study cancer. 
Right. But right, even but even a specific cancer like like leukemia, there are several different subtypes. There are like you mentioned mouse models. That's one way to to approach the problem. So what specifically uh, do you do, or do you want to do during your PhD? Yeah. So I mean, the lab is itself is very general. So it studies uh, myeloid and lymphoid leukemias, um, and also many other types. For my focus, it's more of a kind of a fishing expedition. Um, so I'm also doing both. Uh, Is it fishing or efficient? Uh, fishing, like fishing? I'm basically <laughs> see if I could get uh, find a candidate. Okay. So we don't know, like uh, you know, whether we could get one or not. Mm-hmm. So that's why I call it kind of a fishing, fishing thing. You might not get a fish or not. Um, sure. Yeah. So, but I, in terms of what I study, I study both acute myeloid leukemia and T cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Okay. Is there a, a obvious difference between the two? Yeah, uh, I mean, besides like the lineage, like uh, key myeloid is like the myeloid lineage, mm-hmm. uh, T cell leukemias are, of course, the, the lymphoid lineage. And I mean, each leukemia also are very heterogeneous, so there's different mutations within each, uh, each of these leukemias. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's definitely not like a black and white thing when it comes right. to leukemia or, or, or all cancers in that case, but it's a, it's a very heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. type of cancer. And, and when you say you're, this is a, a fishing expedition, the, the candidates that you're fishing for are specifically genes. Right. Right? Right. So, so could you explain, because, you know, because I've worked here and I've, we've kind of worked together a little mm-hmm. bit, and so I've come to know that you, you are an aficionado or maybe even an expert on CRISPR screens. Yes, yeah. So can, uh-huh. we, can we maybe, because that, that is your... Your, I guess, fishing rod. Exactly. I guess we yeah, that's a good way to put so, it. So could you explain what a CRISPR screen is and how you go about setting it up? Sure. I mean, basically, a CRISPR screen is a genome editing tool which allows you to perturb DNA sequences uh, of your gene of interest. So, for example, if I want to eliminate a gene, I can use CRISPR to do that. And so in cancer, we want to see whether we can find drug target that can inhibit or block a gene ex- uh, activity. Mm-hmm. So we can use CRISPR to kind of target these genes to kind of mimic what we could see as a therapeutic candidate. Right. Um, so basically I'm using this CRISPR system targeting genes and I'm specifically targeting like a class of proteins that like to bind to RNA. So these are called, called uh, RNA binding proteins. And so I'm doing this screen basically in AML as well as T-cell, plastic mm-hmm. And then over the course of the screen, it's uh, so the reason it's called a screen, mm-hmm. right, is because so the way CRISPR works is uh, as you were starting to explain, uh, it's CRISPR Cas9. The enzyme is Cas9. Mm-hmm. That is the endonuclease that does the the DNA double strand break mm-hmm. activity, and to target it to a region in the genome, you give it a, a guide RNA. Right? Yes. So what makes this a screen is that you have pooled a bunch of guide RNAs uh, together that would cause the Cas9 protein to go to the different spots in the genome. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah so in terms of like how I yeah. approach the screen, um, basically it's called a pooled screen. Mm-hmm. So in the past, people have done one by one. Mm-hmm. It's very tedious, sure. not very high throughput. Yeah. But this pooled screening using CRISPR, basically you pooled all these so guide RNAs that can target specific genes into one kind of library. And then you just transduce this library into cells, in my case, leukemia cells. And you want such that, you know, you optimize it such that you get one integration of guide right. RNA per cell. Right. 
um, and basically just then carry forth kind of what's called a negative selection assay. So basically you want to find guide RNAs that drop out in a time course dependent manner. Mm -hmm. And at each of these time points, you can take the DNA sequences and do what we call like a next generation sequencing to see what guide RNAs are left over or what has dropped out. And guide RNAs that drop out, um, basically these are genes that are lethal to the, to the cell, right. are potential candidates in our case. Or these are genes that knocking them out is yes. lethal. Yeah, exactly. Cell, right? yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So what step of the, so you've completed the, because uh, uh, a screen like this is usually done after doing some of your background research, you find a list of, so how many genes did you target? That's always an interesting number. Right, uh, yeah. so it's about total, close to a 500 genes. Okay. Um, yeah. And after my screening, you know, if I do a very non-stringent cutoff, we have about 150-ish, which is still oh, wow. a lot, right? So you have 150 candidate yes. genes. So these are 150 guide RNAs that got depleted. Yes, basically. exactly. Wow. Yeah. That's nice. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's still a lot. So, we, have, we added additional filters to mm -hmm. our uh, screen criteria. Sure. So, for example, a lot of these, what we call RNA binding proteins, can be very general. So, they can regulate processes involved in uh, normal cells, basically. And we're not interested in those, because in, in terms of targeted therapy, we want stuff that's toxic to the cancer cells, but not exactly. normal cells. Exactly. Um, so kind of another criteria is what we call the counter selection screen, which is taking the same library and testing across normal cells, different cancer cells. Right. Yeah. And in the end, when you do the same analysis for all of them, you want to identify a candidate that's just required in your leukemia cell line, right. but not in others. Right. I guess that's the key point. That's yeah. the key point, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course, you know, I think in the end when we still filter out all these, there's probably about 20 to 30 candidates. So we have also like additional filters, mm -hmm. like is it clinically relevant? Are these right. expressed in actual patient samples? And uh, most important of all, is there a drug target already? Right? Mm -hmm. Is it like an inhibitor that we can use? Right. So that's kind of the... Is that, a, is that a typical success rate for a screen? I feel like you did pretty well there. <laughs> well, pretty lucky, yeah, uh, fortunately. 150 out of 500. Yeah. That's not... I mean, there's definitely a lot of work yeah. to do for, for my PhD. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe yeah. in the future. Yeah. Uh, so what, what uh, so you've done the screen. So what position, like what point in, I guess, if you were to draw a timeline hmm. of, uh, so I started saying this earlier, is that usually people do their background research, come up with a list of uh, targets, and then they'll do the screen, uh, and there, there's, a, there's a sequence of events, right? So where along the sequence are you? So you've, you've done the screen, you have your quite stringent cutoffs, right? So you still have 20 something mm -hmm. targets. So what's, so is that where you are, or have you done a bunch of other interesting experiments to kind of uh, yeah. characterize some of these genes? Yes, yeah. so like out of the 500, mm -hmm. uh, I decided to follow up on two of them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, primarily because these have a, a readily available uh, inhibitor, small molecule inhibitor that mm -hmm. can target this protein. Uh, so one of these proteins, uh, there's actually a recent published work that suggests that this inhibitor can degrade my candidate of interest. So basically what I do is like, since I have this candidate, I first validate that 
you know, we get this results and also that they kill other leukemia cell lines as well. Uh, but no, I'm also starting to test these small molecule inhibitors to look at their sensitivity across leukemia lines, but also normal cells to see if, any, if there's any toxicity uh, of this inhibitor. So right now I'm doing a lot of in vitro or like with cell culture and also with mouse um, to see whether they could tolerate uh, this, this drug basically. Um, and you know, once we verify that this could be a potential therapeutic target, you know, I would like to further study more the mechanism, like why this candidate, why leukemia cells require this candidate. And so that's more, more of my PhD in the next couple oh, of years. Sure. Uh, but right now I have a kind of a nice, um, what cause a phenotype, basically it kills leukemia cells, right. but not other cells. Right. Which is what everybody wants. That yes. Great. Exactly. So is there, is there a category that uh, you could put most of these, or I guess let's talk about the two that you, you selected. Mm -hmm. Is there a category that you put these genes in? Are they metabolic genes? Are they epigenetic regulation genes? Like where, where would you? Yeah, so these them? are, um, so it's a RNA binding proteins. Oh, okay, this, so okay. Yeah, so this one is more involved in splicing. Okay. Uh, wow. So uh, for some, I mean splicing as you think of, it's a very general mechanism. Mm -hmm. right? Every cell needs it. Yeah. But for some reason, this specific candidate, our leukemia cells, are somehow like addicted. They mm -hmm. call it like an oncogenic addiction. But before you go on, can you explain what splicing is? Because in, uh, in popular media, like in, uh, the, the example that comes to mind right away is the Jurassic World movie. I don't know if you saw it. Ah, uh, uh, yes. One? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they, yeah. They with gene splicing technology, right, right. we were able to incorporate. Crystal. So, yeah. <laughs> but the, but the, so I feel like splicing is used incorrectly. Uh, in popular media, of course, they can say, oh, it means whatever, it's a fictional story. But so what exactly does splicing mean when we talk about it in the molecular bi biology context? Right, so this goes all the way back to like the central dogma mm -hmm. of biology. You know, you have your DNA, transcription occurs, you get RNA, and then translation to protein. So where splicing comes along is basically have your, your DNA strand already, and it's in the process of transcription now generating this... Uh, what we call mRNA, which is a RNA molecule. And, you know, in the genome, we have basically two types of sequences, uh, exonic and intronic. So intronic is, um, I mean, nowadays there's a lot of interest in it, but in right. terms of genes, uh, intronic regions are not needed. Mm -hmm. So they need to be somehow cut out. And this is where the splicing complex, uh, spliceosome complex comes in where basically it's a multi-subunit like RNA binding protein complex that gets recruited to certain parts of the mRNA. And what it does is just through this, what they call the transesterification process, basically cuts out the intron region and just leaves the exon sequences. Mm -hmm. And then once you have this fully mature, what we call mRNA, they, they can now proceed to translation. For protein. Okay. And and okay. So now let's wrap her back around to how the specific genes you're targeting, how they relate to your project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so right. So I mean, one of my candidates is uh, part of this complex. Um, so we think that there might be some regulation of splicing. Mm -hmm. Of course, I mean, we have to verify this using um, experiments, but. Uh, Basically, we think for some reason these leukemia cells are very addicted to this one subunit of this splicing complex. Okay. And right now we're not sure. I mean, hopefully I can find out <laughs> in my PhD. Um, 
but yeah, basically that's. So I'll come back to you in like, what, like two months? You'll have the answer. Right? <laughs> sure, three you can months. Try. Yeah, three months. Sure. <laughs> so you actually have a very uh, interesting path, I guess, to, to to where you are now. Is you worked as a research technician? Yes. Uh, for not just you know the typical maybe two maybe three years, but. Mm. Many years, right? So, right, right. So, so how how long did you did you work as a research technician? Uh, five years. For five years. Yeah, Cold Spring Harbor. At, at Cold Spring Harbor. Yeah. And so, so how did you get? Or so let, let's let's go all the way to the back. All right. All let's right. let's start at the beginning. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about bagels. Bagels. <laughs> They're probably in my vein right now. I'm probably like, <laughs> my body's made up of like 80% bagels. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I mean, it dates back to all the way when uh, my family came from Taiwan. Um, basically, they, were, they arrived at Long Island and they wanted some quick cash, basically. <laughs> it was either a pizzeria or a bagel shop. Okay. <laughs> and so that's where like kind of, uh, I mean, they decided to do like a kind of a bakery, a bagel shop. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, this is also like before I was born. So we've had this family business for over like 30 years now. Wow. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, when I was growing up, I would uh, help Is it out. still around? It's still around. So where is it exactly? Uh, Long Island. In, where am I? In Huntington. In Huntington? Yeah. What's it it's called? called Bagel USA. Bagel USA, Huntington, Long Island. Shout out. Thanks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Promoting my business. Sponsored by? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's definitely um, taught me the hardship of life, I guess. I mean, it, you, you wake up early, like 4, 5 a.m. in the morning, right. you bake bagels. People need their bagels. Yeah, like you know, you got to yeah. give them their stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think it helped me build a very strong, in terms of uh, work ethics, mm-hmm. initially. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I still go back when I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> bake some bagels, yeah. bring back to lab. Nice. So so then so you so you how old were you when you worked in the in the shop with your family? So I think, I mean, at elementary school. I mean, I wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> this it was is like off the record. <laughs> off the record. It was more like playing around. So my dad would give me some like bagel dough. Mm-hmm. I would make like cute little snakes, some dinosaurs of the dough, and he would okay. bake them, and they would sell them. Oh uh, wow! Okay. So that was my first real experience as nice. a kid. Nice. Um, I think it wasn't until like later in high school where I started working like just in the front, you know, in the like in the cash register. Mm-hmm. And it was really during college where you know I started to do some more manly work, you know, <laughs> back in the in the oven, oh, okay. uh, sweating there. Okay. So that's in high, in college is basically where I kind of learned the ropes of oh, the business. Okay. And even when I was a research tech, I, I was working like part time at the bagel shop. Yeah. So 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 where where did that happen? So where did the transition from bagels to biology? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that could be the name of your your autobiography. That's a great. Uh, <laughs> that's great. I mean, it's yeah. definitely. I mean, it's definitely not a followed path. I mean, uh, in college, I originally majored in computer science mm. because my family were mostly computer science majors. Wow. Yeah. Um, I didn't like it. I tried information systems as a backup, didn't like it. And finally, I decided to major in biology. Uh, it wasn't until my junior year. And at that time, I didn't have any experience. So we actually had a, um, a customer at our bagel shop. 
asked me, do you want to work in a lab? Wow. Out of nowhere, really. No I mean, I wanted like a This is more job. connected than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that's when I really, I mean, it was a, a summer internship at this, uh, the Feinstein Institute, uh, Long Island. And I just spent the past two summers just working there. And that's really, you know, my first experience learning kind of the bread and butter of molecular biology, mm-hmm. like cloning, uh, PCR. Sure. And it's really those experiences that really, you know, made me interested in continuing research. But it was still like after college, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to do it. So uh, that's when I decided to become a research technician. Right. So that's when you ended up at Cold Spring Harbor. Yes. Which some people would argue is one of the, one of those, uh, you know, one, one of the, the science meccas, if you will. It's, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting place. It's, uh, once again, Long Island, uh, New York. It's a tucked away uh, little village, and it's uh, just super concentrated with super smart people working on very interesting things, right? Yeah. So how did you find the lab that you ended up in, in Cold Spring Harbor? Again, it's, it's all luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because, um, uh, well, you know, after I left for grad school, my, my boss told me, uh, you know, we had uh, a couple of interviewees, you know, for his, for his lab. And, you know, the, the guy that interviewed after me was a, was a better candidate. He was smart. <laughs> uh, but the reason why he chose me is because uh, I had a nice smile. Oh, know, wow. looked like a nice guy. <laughs> so, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so, you know, and, you know, I was, yeah. So that was kind of funny, but... Mm. I mean, at that time, I didn't know what kind of research I wanted to do. I, I just wanted any research experience, so I applied for any technician mm-hmm. uh, jobs. Uh, but, I mean, that's when I got the offer from the Cold Spring Harbor Lab uh, from my uh, previous mentor, Chris Bakic. And, you know, he's really been a great mentor the past five years. I mean, not just in science, but, like, uh, I mean, he helped, he helped a lot for my like, grad school applications and, you know, giving me recommendation letters. So it's, it's, it's definitely wasn't a planned path, uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and you mentioned you were there for five years? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what, because, and the reason I ask is, is, you know, it's with, I guess, just taking a look at the norm, which is, you know, people who want to get some exposure to the research usually work as a research technician for maybe... I don't know, one to three years, something like that, and then mm. they go on to grad school, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of my story as well. I, I yeah. worked as a technician for maybe roughly two years, and then mm. I'm, I'm going to be going to grad school. So what compelled you to, or was grad school not even on your mind? So uh, like, what, what was the thought process behind yeah. staying there for so five years? So grad school for the first two years actually wasn't an option for me. Actually, okay. I didn't even know that um, much about grad school. Okay. Um, it was my friend, a graduate student in, in my previous lab, that said, oh, you know, grad school, they pay for everything, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it kind of piqued my interest, of <laughs> course. Uh, but, yeah, the first two years, I didn't think about it. I I'd originally wanted to apply to med school, you know, oh, okay. uh, or like a MD-PhD program, perhaps. Sure. Um, but I, I think partially the, first, the reason why I stayed longer was because I really got like really engulfed in the research you know we were doing some really fascinating things mm-hmm. and you know like one of the published work during that my time there is actually a clinical trial drug right now wow. so it's I, I just felt like if I leave now I'll be missing out on a lot of stuff and mm-hmm. learning a lot of techniques and 
you know, for example, my first my first experience with CRISPR was in the lab. Oh, so okay. it's it's really helped me learn a lot of different techniques and develop me as a scientist, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah. So and is the the so you you also worked on leukemia there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Okay, yeah. Good. So yeah. that's. I mean, that's. I, I think. I mean, I tried. I mean, in grad school, we could do different rotations, sure. try different labs. Uh, I mean, I tried a few, but I think uh, leukemia is still, you know, it's more, it's interesting for me. Uh, I also have more background, and so sure. I feel like, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of experience, I can help more often or not. Yeah. yeah. So, in terms of, sorry about that, folks. If you heard a uh, audio jump there, it's because my iPad ran out of battery and <laughs> stopped recording and interrupted the entire mojo. But that's okay. We'll jump back in. <laughs> I don't remember where we were. So, Eric, would you like to say anything? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess it was just my time at Cold Spring Harbor really helped me develop myself as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if, if it really wasn't my experience there, I probably wouldn't have considered grad school. I'd probably consider, like, an industry job sure. that pays better, and, you know, <laughs> better life. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't regret it at all. I feel like uh, this has really been a true calling for me. Great. So where, since you have kind of maybe discovered your, your true calling, where exactly do you see yourself in the next, I don't know, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I've def- I have definitely want to consider the academia track. So mm-hmm. maybe uh, going for a postdoctoral uh, position somewhere in another lab. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully eventually, you know, my long-term goal way out there is to have my own own lab. Um, I haven't thought about what research I want to do yet. Leukemia? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a very competitive field. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely open to doing something different, of course. But uh, my first priority is really to try to get my own lab going oh. in the future. Great. And if there's any piece of advice that, because you're still a student, you're in the middle of all of this, yeah, you're still close to the action. So if there's any piece of advice that you could offer to any either current PhD student or somebody who's thinking about a life in scientific research or academia, or mm. is there anything that comes to mind that you would want to share? Or maybe something that you wish someone told you when you were first considering this? Yeah, I mean, I say if you're... I mean, if you're not sure... I mean, this is for people who are... They don't have any research experience or maybe in high school or college, but... Um, I mean, if you're even a tiny bit interested in research, I would consider just going to the closest institute or, you know, um, or hospital just to get some research experience, I think, you know, just to kind of expose yourself and to see if you really like research. I mean, for me, I I didn't expect this uh, to be like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I definitely recommend anyone to just go out there and do some research to see if they like it. Uh, as for the current PhD students, you know, I say, you know, hang in there. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I mean, for me, I think it's like a, it's a game of emotions. You know, sometimes you have negative results and, sure. you know, you get depressed. But, you know, it's a cycle, you know. Um, so I say just hang in there and, you know, you'll be all right. Great. That's yeah. really good advice. Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining me. This was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for uh, the invitation. Of course. Cheers. Thanks.
termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.